Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Spensky. Today we are discussing chapter 16 and we will be covering this chapter in three parts over separate podcasts. This is part two. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindle.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar, and I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. So Pete, I'm just going to play a little bit of what we finished up with last week and let's get on with it. I love this last this I love this last little paragraph following that story though, and following those two stories, you know, the stagecoach and, and yep. the girl and so on. And it says, and and the brain, obviously, says, all of this shows that it is necessary to philosophize with a certain amount of skill. Fabulous. Our thought is encompassed by many blind alleys and positivism, always attempting to apply the rule of proportion, is in itself such a blind alley. You can't always measure things by analogy to positivism and the, your positive experience of the 3D world. Mm. That's what he's saying. Yeah. This rule of proportion is measuring. Yes. What do you think he means by philosophize with a certain amount of skill? Do you think he's, he's meaning that you have to think differently to philosophize? Yeah, because you wouldn't actually get anywhere. If, if you actually measure everything in terms of what you already think you know, um, then you won't actually move any further forward, which is why the, the stagecoach story is particularly fabulous. You know, if mm. you don't imagine that there'll be something beyond the, the idea that we have to be pulled along by horses in some kind of carriage, then we're not really going to get anywhere, which is why when people say, ha, teleportation is never possible, blah, 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 it's like, how do you know? That's well. Yeah, if you don't think it's possible, you won't find a way, will you? Because you're not even exploring it. Well, that's right. Well, we won't be looking at you to find out how to do it, but we, you know, we don't know what other people will look at. Certainly, yeah. the Uspensky was was able to imagine the train because he came up with this story, and the train already existed in his time. The the moving hotel powered by something with a thousand horsepower, probably more. Uh, oh, maybe not. Um, that that certainly was a thing. It was a phenomenal thing. So he was able to use it. But, you know, Uspensky, would he be looking at um, space travel? Mm. But somebody already had. By then, Lumiere had um, made his silent movie, uh, Journey to the Moon. Admittedly, that's not how we've done it, or, or certainly how we imagine it, um, because he had the spaceship being shot from a cannon. God only knows what... <laughs> What the, yeah. effect, the the blistering acceleration would be for that, and that's again, it's like warp warp drive, you know, this faster than light travel, which you, the way it's done in movies for or TV, for example, Star Trek, uh, warp six, engage, and and like within two or three seconds of visual on the screen, they're they're going from something relatively cruisy to trans light speed. Now, the degree of acceleration would have them all splattered against the back wall. <laughs> but of course, that doesn't happen. 
However, having said that, <laughs> I'm quite able to accept the fact that if we are going to come up with a method of doing it, and it's quite possible that we will, that um, we will we will also have to find a way <laughs> that makes it doable without squishing us against the back wall. And I'm pretty sure we will. <laughs> yes. All right. So we continue on with the brain and Spensky's next couple of points are not the giant brain, but he's in essence uh, proving that, well, he's uh, pontificating that consciousness is not a function of the brain. Uh, consciousness is a function of a higher order and uh, because the brain is a function, is, is a lower order, and you can't have a higher order being part of a lower order, therefore it cannot be. Let me just read it to you. Okay, so it permits us to assert quite definitely that the phenomena of consciousness cannot be a function of the brain, i.e. a function of psychological and physical phenomena, or phenomena of a lower order. We established that a higher order cannot be a function of the lower. But I think, look, we've already... We we have already established this in many chapters before. Yep. He is just we have. he's just so building he's just building his his plan, and um, he said uh, the higher orders of phenomena. And this was in well he has also mentioned this before, but I think this this is an interesting reiteration of a, of a former point. He's talking about phenomena having a large amounts of latent force. He said, and of course we have the right to call those phenomena the higher, which possess immeasurably greater potentiality immeasurably more latent force and to call those lower which possess less potentiality and less latent force and i think that that makes a lot of sense to me because the power of your mind the power of your thoughts as we've already explored is is a lot it's got a lot of um, potential or latent energy in them and and are a lot more powerful once that energy is released than something uh, physical like you know um, pushing the lawnmower or something like that because that lasts for that that exchange of of energy whereas a thought can go on for centuries or an idea can can go on for you know create big things create more than just an idea create a, a physical or or otherwise mm-hmm. we, we yeah we did all that we've done all that so then he says the phenomenon of life are higher in comparison with the physical phenomena and then he, he he upgrades consciousness to be higher than the phenomena of life and we have we have been through that before he says that uh, without making a palpable logical mistake we cannot declare life in consciousness to be to be dependent functionally on physical phenomena i.e the result of physical phenomena the truth is quite the opposite of this Everything forces us to recognise physical phenomena as a result of life and life as a result of consciousness. But of which life and of which consciousness? And that, I think, is where we, we have an interesting point. And we've well, mentioned this says before. Also, in my version, the bit where he says the truth is quite the opposite of this. Everything forces us to recognise physical phenomena as the result of life and life as the result of some form of psychic life. Okay, that second life is referring to life in the purely biological sense. He's put that in brackets in my version, so that you can differentiate life overall from the biological positivistic life. Okay, so is he calling life as a biological phenomenon that's akin to the no, physical he's saying phenomenon? There are, there, are, there are two. This is the whole point. He says, 
The truth is quite the opposite. Everything forces us to recognize physical phenomena as the result of life, and life in a biological sense as the result of some form of psychic life, which is perhaps unknown to us. Okay. So the psychic life... Is, is responsible for the biological life, is what he's saying. He says the psychic life, without the psychic life, there is no biological life. But biological life doesn't create the psychic life. He's saying it's that way yeah. round. He then yeah, asks the question, of... but of which life and of which psyche? Herein lies the question. That is the question. So, um, of course, he says, of, of course, it would be absurd to regard planetary sphere as a function of the vegetable and animal life proceeding upon it and the visible stellar universe as a function of human consciousness. But nothing of this sort is meant. And now he talks about the occult. In the occult understanding of things, we speak always of another life and another consciousness, the particular manifestation of which is our life and our consciousness. It is important to establish the general principle that physical phenomena, being the lower, depend on the phenomena of life and of consciousness, which are higher. But I think I think what he's saying here is that our life is um, part of a bigger life. I'm, I'm thinking Russian dolls here, you know, one inside the other inside the other is what he's saying. And here's the thing. When he says that, you know, it would be observed you know, to regard our planetary sphere as a function of the vegetable and animal life proceeding upon it, and the visible stellar universe as a function of the human psyche. Well, I can argue that one, and people are arguing that one, that it's quite conceivable that the universe only exists as a projection of our consciousness. And it, well, Svensky's already spent a lot of time saying that, hasn't he? What, well, in which case we... he's just contradicted himself. I'm saying the entire universe. He's just said that it can't. He said it would be absurd to 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 try to consider that the the planetary spheres in our solar system and the universe beyond are a product of the psyche of the vegetable and animals on this planet. Um, I'm saying that that's not necessarily the case. I'm saying that it, the universe might not exist if we were not projecting that illusion. Because he says that nothing of this sort is meant. Uh, straight after that, does he say that in yours? No. Yeah, he does in mine. He says, you know, here lies the question. Of course, it would be absurd to regard our planetary sphere, and you're right, he's contradicting himself as um, a function of human consciousness, but nothing of the sort is meant. So, yeah, he is, regardless of whether that line is in there or not, he is contradicting what he has said all along, that the way we mm. perceive this, this whole world, and that includes stars and the planets, etc., mm. is just our our five senses interacting because, with our consciousness. Yeah. Because the universe can be whatever you perceive it to be, is is the point here. See, and then he's saying in the occult understanding of things, we speak always of another life and another consciousness, the particular manifestation of which is our life and our consciousness. He's almost saying that our life and our consciousness is part of a bigger life and consciousness. We are kind of... Yeah, a, I don't like... The, you know, we, we're running into language difficulty now because part implies separation. This is a really crucial issue because, you know, uh, if we casually use language now, we're, we, we are in trouble. We will be in trouble. 
uh, investigating this. So when we say a part of, don't just casually use that because that that really does imply separation. Mm, that it's broken into us. Yeah. That consciousness is totally separate from this consciousness, in which case we wouldn't be necessarily working in unison. But we let's, let's move. Let's move on. Why do we not go and ask the first question? In what relation does the psychic life of man stand to his body and his brain? Mm-hmm. Because uh, this this is um, this idea of another another body another psyche. Oh, I actually think it's it's horrifically put and unnecessary. Let's get down to the nitty gritty. Okay, let's uh, do let, that. Let's ask the let's ask the questions. Okay, you know, the, it's been answered differently in different times. The psychic life has been regarded as a direct function of the brain. In other words, thought is the motion of brain substance. He's put that in italics. And, quote marks, he is so doubly contemptuous of it. Yes, he is. You can almost hear him saying it. (laughs) Thought is a motion of brain substance. Thought is the motion of brain substance, thus, of course, denying any possibility of thought without the existence of a brain. And then followed an attempt to establish a parallelism between psychic activity and the activity of the brain. In other words, they're saying that... um, Thoughts and ideas are a function of brain activity, and people have been trying to investigate that, and it, it is really rather a ridiculous exercise, and he alludes to the fact that it is really a rather a ridiculous exercise. The nature of the parallelism has always remained obscure. Yes, evidently, the brain works parallel to thinking and feeling. An arrestment or a disorder of the activity of the brain brings a consequence, a visible arrestment or disorder of psychic activity. But after all, the activity of the brain is merely motion, i.e. an objective phenomenon, whereas the activity of the psyche is a phenomenon objectively undefinable and at the same time more powerful than anything objective. How shall we reconcile all this? And I agree with him there. I mean, I think... I think it is established, and certainly that psychical activity is much more powerful, and he's done it himself earlier on, than physical activity that we can measure. In as much as you can't build a palace without having the idea of a palace, then the thought of how you're going to go about it. It has to happen in that way. Yes, it does. You can't build, and it is absolutely impossible in the experience that we have here on the 3D world, and and unless somebody can prove otherwise, I I will stick with this, it is impossible to build a palace before you've had a thought of it. So it's impossible to build a palace and say, do you know what? That looks like a palace to me, what I've just done. I might just live there. Yeah, you know, you wouldn't. You know, it's it's just not possible. Uh, You can't... even if you just built a dwelling, like you didn't think you were going, you're just going to build something to live in and it turned out to look like a palace and then you said, oh, call that a palace because it's more grand than the hut down the road, I'll call this a palace, you still had a thought to build something. You still had a thought to build a shelter. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the label of whether you call it a palace or not, that's irrelevant. As we have to use mm. language. Um, yeah. It's the, it's the idea that you went about making something and building it uh, and then thought, and then had the thought about about yeah. it. Yeah, 
You had to yeah, have had the port before you started yeah. building. Now, a, a great example of this is much easier, and we can demonstrate it now for anybody that's listening. Supposing I were to give you an instruction. Don't think of a cat. Yeah, straight away. You, you cannot not think about something before first thinking about it. It has to be there first. The thought has to be there first. You do it all the time. You have to do it. There's loads of little tricks like that. You know, this might just be me, but sometimes I can see a thought come into my head before my brain thinks it. So well, there you go. A... Um, so there's a disconnect between the brain. Yeah, which shows that the brain just followed what that thought was. Like you get a, a flash of something, a bit of an inspiration, say, and then your brain mm. goes, oh, that means blah, blah, blah. But it's having this very slow process. The brain's doing this analysis thing and then put, and putting things in boxes. Mm. It's got loads of boxes that it can that it can measure that it can measure the thought against. Yeah, but the inspiration came independent of it. It came first. Oh, well, that's before. yeah. Inspiration comes from somewhere else, and that, that's that's yeah. a really good point. So that's the thing. Yeah. So he then goes on to say that consciousness is like a mirror reflecting through the brain, and if you destroyed the brain, you still have consciousness. So what he says is that if someone's dead, their brain is dead. But does consciousness still exist? And he's saying, yes, it would, but it would only be realized as consciousness um, if we could realize consciousness like ours that was not reflected through the brain. So it may still exist. Well, it will still exist, but you won't be able to identify it unless you have a way of identifying it that doesn't require a brain. Mm. So at the moment, we use our brain. to filter through our consciousness. So if you didn't have a brain, it doesn't mean it's not there. It just means that you don't have the mechanism to reflect it. Yeah, that's fair enough. I'll go with that. I don't... Mm. In this um, in this 3D life, actually... In this 3D you know, life, yes. That, yes. Which, which I think that's what we need to say. Yes, so he says um, consciousness cannot suffer from any disorder of the brain, but the manifestations of it may suffer very much or may even disappear from the field of our observation altogether. Observation altogether, yeah. Yeah. He then goes on to say that... uh, Sorry, go on. Well, I like the next. Therefore, it is clear that a disorder in the activity of the brain causes an enfeeblement or distortion or even complete disappearance of the psychic faculties manifesting in our, our sphere. Well, I don't find that clear at all, but I, I will leave him to it. I have no idea how he he means that, and he doesn't go on to say it. And I, I even the language is so old-fashioned and outdated that it, it, it doesn't even warrant investigation. This idea of enfeeblement... He wrote it a hundred years ago. Enfeeblement was probably an in-phrase. Yeah, and so was eugenics at the same time, massively. So why don't we not put the enfeebled into, I don't know, let's let's call them sanatoriums, shall we, where, oh, they'll be given fabulous care, won't they? Maybe we'll, en- maybe we'll electrocute them and maybe we'll do other kinds of things to them. Maybe we'll experiment on them and so on. So, no, I, I, look, this idea of brain and enfeeblement, I think he... Yes, he was writing a hundred years ago. Yes, he is using the language of the times, but rather like his views on women and ethnic minorities and native peoples, I'd rather skip the hell past 
because I don't, first of all, I don't agree with it. And then the language that it uses, I, I find uncomfortable. So, I, and I don't agree with it, by the way. So, um, we'll, you know, I, 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 I'll give him a pass. I mean, it, it, it's a product of the times that he was living in. It is, you know, we, we can be culturally relative about that. And I'm not, I don't have a problem with it. You know, I, I really, really don't because that's what it was. But I don't think it's something that we have to take um, as as given. And we don't have to dwell on bashing him over the head with a stick because of it. See, I, I probably missed your point altogether on that when until you just pointed it out. When I read that, I read, okay, well, if the brain is not functioning properly, it's got some... some um, issue it will it will reflect the world differently to a brain that is functioning in a you know what we call a, a normal well, way so i'm not saying that, that doesn't happen i'm just saying that he he takes it as a given and he couldn't have known and they're not even sure now no that's you know, yeah that's yeah, and, and in there, many yeah. cultures well in and certainly many enough that i can name for example what our society, Western European society, and certainly where he was, um, schizophrenia is considered to be uh, a disease and a misfunction. There are other societies where people with schizophrenia that are hearing things and seeing visions are considered to be the seers and visionaries of the tribe. And right. the tribe uh, successfully okay. functions from that point of view. So this idea that this is that there is um that there's a misfire it's it's what he would interpret as a misfiring of the brain that i, mm-hmm. I disagree with and i and actually yeah. for somebody that's talking about consciousness that doesn't do any anthropological research which he couldn't have done in his day because there wasn't much to go on um you wouldn't realize that um what we call diseases are considered to be magnificent expressions of humanity in other cultures so that's a very interesting point isn't it i mean he's he's obviously mm. very narrow on that one and he's yeah but it's not his fault i mean he's, he's he's written it from the from this idea of cultural superiority let's let's get it let's let's can we move on from the dis- disorder of the brain business yes, i we think certainly can. i th- i think that he and we agree that consciousness is not dependent upon the brain Correct. Yes. That's that's the point. And and then we don't have to go through these um what for me are culturally uncomfortable ideas. But I do accept it. I do accept where he was coming from and where he lived and there is this, this idea of superiority all over the, the Western world at that time, this imperialist, colonialist <laughs> superiority there personally don't agree with but i'd rather talk about positivism and destroying positivism yes let's get on with that let's get on with the good stuff well where would you like to start on that because there's loads of loads of opportunities here um he does go on about the brain a little bit further about the dead man and the whatever and etc i'll follow your scaffold for this chapter you move us on Right, okay. So he says we cannot prove that consciousness exists outside of the brain because it's our interaction with other consciousness like ours and that by analogy shows its existence. But if we could realise our consciousness outside the brain, then we could realise consciousnesses like ours um, that were not reflected through the brain. So he's kind of saying that if, if we didn't have the brain as the 
instrument of reflecting consciousness and we were free of it, we may well be in a better position to um, realise consciousnesses that, say, are in other beings that don't have a physical body. So we, we would be able to expand our interaction with other consciousnesses. I'll read you what he says. Should we ever realise our consciousness, not only as it is reflected from a brain, but in a condition more universal, simultaneously with this, the possibility would open up of discovering consciousnesses analogical to ours, which are not reflected from a brain, if such exist in nature. So nothing to say on that. I thought that was interesting. I thought that was... In what way? Uh, in what way? That... that uh, it's it's kind of saying that our brain limits our consciousness and if we didn't have that limitation, we might experience consciousness in a different way. Yeah, which maybe we do. Maybe we do. Maybe he's we only, do when he's we're only... sleeping and dreaming. Yes. So, you know, I, I... Yeah. And I... Yeah, but more than that, you can... That, that That's something you have no control over. What we're going to suggest is that there are ways of doing this where you do have control over the experience, Mm -hmm. which is what shamanic practitioners do. Okay, so we might talk about that as well when we get to that part because he does he does start talking about um, expanding uh, the expansion of consciousness a few Mm -hmm. pages on. That's right. So let's move on. So for the next two pages. We look at the positivistic view of the world and he pulls together all the theories of dimensions explained in the first 12 chapters. So he's, he's kind of, it's kind of the big medley of everything he's talked about before. But he does say here that science has given us a great thing with, with all its positivistic thinking. It's given us the concept of uniformity of phenomena. In other words, that objects cannot um, function sort of independently on their own. They have to function mm-hmm. together. Yeah. In a uniform way. So you can't have a machine with all the parts functioning in any way they like. They have to be all working together, and that's that uniformity. The ontological argument for the existence of God, in other words. If you were stumbling through the desert as a clever savage, for example, <laughs> to give the example. A crafty and wise savage. Crafty, yeah. Um, imagine that your world, up until this point, has consisted of caves, sand, clubbing animals to death and eating them, and, you know, procreating and so on, but nothing else. You, you've done nothing else. And you stumble across a very ornate and wonderful pocket watch lying there on the sand. Would you imagine that it was natural, that it was a, it was a piece of nature, just like a rock that you hadn't, but of a kind that you hadn't seen before, or upon inspecting it, would you think that this had to be made by somebody, that it had to be of a design because it works so symmetrically? If you, if you were able to, if it was one of those pocket watches where you could actually see the workings of it going on inside, would you have to conclude that that couldn't happen naturally, that it had to have a designer? You probably would because your experience with nature would be randomness. Yeah, and you wouldn't Sorry? see that kind of precision either. You wouldn't see engineering no. and precision where the cogs all interact with each other. Right. So, okay, so Spensky's saying that science has given us that concept of uniformity of phenomena. So I think he's saying uniformity of being able to measure it. 
that yeah, science, science seems to be able to say that we can have all of these um, great phenomena, but we have to have a designer. We have to have somebody to design these things, which starts by measuring and then by using the knowledge that we have to construct things. For example, without science, you wouldn't have had the steam engine. You'd have still been trying to pull a giant hotel-sized chariot with a thousand horses. Actually, you wouldn't because you would have realised that it was far too difficult an idea and you'd never have done it. Yeah, it'd be a folly. Hmm. Well, mm. yeah, nobody would have attempted it, so. Mm. So, uh, all right, so he says um, that not only that positivistic philosophy explains everything is proceeding from causes, which are mm -hmm. irrational and unconscious. So that positivistic thinking does not consider consciousness. It considers everything as kind of an accident. So like the laws of nature can be measured, but you can't predict when the big hurricane's coming necessarily, or maybe you can, no. but, but it, it comes when it wants to come. To a degree, it's how, quick, it's how far ahead you can predict it, isn't it? Yes, yes, but it's still... Um, it's not considering that that hurricane has a consciousness and is making a decision to come blowing through the the, the land. It just is. It it is uh, something that's happened as a as a irritation of some sort. Yeah, so we've of, had you know nature. different pressures meeting each other, blah blah blah, and different yeah. humidity levels, and then we've we'll got the storm sort of and it's a so, cyclone, blah 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 blah. Yeah, I get it. Yep, yep, yep. And so, in a positivistic framework, he talks about this German. A, a psychophysiologist who had this great experiment or thought for an experiment, he didn't actually do it, that if from birth you deprived man of all external impressions, that um, he wouldn't be able to perform even the most insignificant action. And so from a, if, that's, if that's a scientific point of view, then that what they're saying is that man is an automaton, like, um, well, he actually brings in Tesla's name, he says, like the automaton projected by the American inventor Tesla, which obeying electric currents and vibrations from a great distance without wires was calculated to execute a whole series of complicated movements. So, which is the one in the movie Metropolis, if you ever get to watch it by Fritz Lang. Okay, cool. I haven't seen it. So he's basically saying that positivistic science really does not take into account any consciousness it just says it's you know we can measure it we can predict it we we can tell you all about it, and if we can't do that now we will be able to when we get the the mechanisms or yeah, the, the equipment right. to do it yep and that's exactly and, what uh, it does and it continues to do so nutshelled everything is a transfer of energy as far as positivistic science is concerned it's um electromagnetic and then physico-chemical and this explains visible motion and growth which is explained as life and at last uh, consciousness is the brain so everything is 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 explained in terms of transfers of energy that that are either physical or chemical or electromagnetic and that's just the, the cycle goes on all the way through to life itself his only thumbs up to positivism, but it gave us this concept of uniformity, which he's now going to run with. Yeah, I know. And I, I just think it's interesting that, you know, he could, he could actually have said that positivism has had its value where, where it needs to be attacked is for this new pseudo-religious idea that positivism is the only thing 
if if the positivists, if the scientists and those that believe in it gullibly without investigation could only accept that this was only a part of a reality that's much greater than the three dimensions that we perceive um, in, in our existence in the 3D world, that there's something more that positivism could be put to a much more valuable use. Instead, positivism has been used, and even in his time, especially in his time, has been used to actually squash any idea of esoteric, mm. occult, spiritual investigation and the idea of incorporating the results of such investigation into the experience of life here in the third dimension to enhance it, to even enhance the positivistic view that we that we take by being able to measure things so that we can have a better experience in the 3D world. If If the positivists had just accepted that, then we'd be further away, uh, further along in both um, physical, intellectual, and spiritual evolution than we are now. But yeah. that religion, the the religion of science, is like the religion of Catholicism up until the twentieth century, and certain and in certain parts of the world still, uh, in as much as it stifles rather than encourages expansion of experience and knowledge and bringing that into our human experience it's it's a prison rather than um a, an enabling and empowering experience positivism the science of positivism and science are the same thing modern science we didn't have this in the middle ages by the way people were much more in much greater connection with spiritual the numinous and you know, whether not just in a, a religious capacity of prayer and and worshipping the saints and all of this, I'm talking about in their everyday lives. What we would now, what positives would now laugh at as being superstitions. They were much yeah. more in touch with, with phenomena, the the creation of phenomena from from a source and a cause way beyond the physical experience of the five senses that was quashed absolutely definitely starting in the 17th century and then it's it's gained its power ever since burning witches you know they had a, a relationship with the earth and the healing medicine yeah but the reason that they burned witches was because they believed in this non-positivistic phenomena they would the burners yeah. are just as much believers in the non-positivistic world as the witches that they were burning the the real problem comes when we have scientists that wouldn't burn a witch because they'd say a witch was irrelevant it's just some nutcase that thinks they can they can affect things by magic and we all know that magic doesn't exist that's the that's the positivism Believe me, the Puritans that were burning witches had just as much belief in the, the power of the witch, otherwise they wouldn't need to burn them. That's the thing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. They, they so were the challenging science, a power source. The, yeah, it was like, which, which numinous power is the greater, ours or yours? But we're, we're both talking about a, a numinal power, whereas... Once positive comes in and says, oh, forget that. Stop wasting your time. 
Let's let's have a look at what temperature water boils at instead. Does gas expand? Yeah, we, can, we can reproduce and, that. And, so, and all of this. Yeah, uh, we can we can do that in a lab. Let's have a look at that and forget all of this nonsense, this superstitious peasantry, this medieval stupidity that you you used to think about. And that's what positive has done. And it became the new religion. It is a religion. It is a cult. The scientific cult now claims most of the world. And it is a yeah. cult. It's it's a disgrace. And it is a cult. Anyway, I move on from my ranting about science and positivism. Uh, me and me and Dispensky are here on the same page with po yes. re regards you, you to positivism. I accept yeah, the beauty of the of the positive things that it's brought to me. A nice warm house, you know. I get around in a car. I have a sports car with the, that I can drive with the roof down, and all these things that it's allowed me to have. Um, I, I accept that, but I don't believe that in the, in it as a religion. And I do think that we would have even more. We would have even better experiences as a human race if positivism wasn't so shrill and contentious and protective of its one view is all status. And that view, by the way, is our view. We scientists, we are the new high priests of the cult. Which, by the way, for those listening at another, in another era, is why we are currently living in a lockdown. We're, we're, we're currently prisoners in our own homes because of a non-existent virus that, that scientists have persuaded the huge mass of humanity exists and is killing people in numbers that rival the black death of the 14th century when it actually it kills far less people than the common cold plus mm. the virus doesn't yeah. actually exist but but that's because of science if science wasn't this cult with its high priests held in such ludicrously high regard we would not be prisoners in our own homes at the moment at the time of recording this podcast this is a great mm. example of how far positivism can lead us down the road to imprisonment and slavery just by yeah. believing in it not because anybody has to have a, an ulterior motive and I'm, you know i'm not talking about any politics or conspiracy theory i'm just telling you this is the this is the logical outcome of giving priest status to scientists and who who have positivism only in their ooh, let's say the word brain Okay, so so I'm with Uspensky all the way here. When Uspensky is contemptuous of it, that's what he knew. This is something he knew. Even back then, a hundred years ago, he knew it. He knew that everybody had been bamboozled by this. Mm. And he's not letting go of it too. He's, he's... No, he, he keeps coming in chapter after chapter. And, you know, much to his credit that he doesn't let go of it because he knows he's mm. got to persuade an audience that will be that will have been hypnotised by the new cult. Yeah, yeah, and that would have, you know, sort of wouldn't have been entrenched as it is now. Even like that, no. you know, he saw it then before it's even been, you know, yeah. really. It's 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 worse now because, you know, we have ma a mass and very quick media that, you know, just puts it in mm. everybody's head. Yeah, and they they're the ones yeah. who tell us who's clever and who isn't. Needless to say, they they tell us that the high priests of the cult are clever. And the rest of us should bow and worship at their feet. All right. So let's get on to what he's saying at positivism. Uh, he's continuing to say that without acknowledging consciousness, what positivistic science is left with is that the world is the result of an unconscious mechanical force. 
because it can only be one of two things. It can either, if, if consciousness exists, then it is uh, living and conscious of itself. If consciousness doesn't exist, then it's mechanical, dead, accidental. And he says this here. One or the other of two things must be true. Either it is mechanical and dead, accidental, or it is living and conscious of itself. There can be nothing dead in living nature and there can be nothing living in dead nature. And this is after he's, he's talked about the fact that we, you know, getting back to material, looking at um, the world from a material point or from a positivistic point of view where we're saying it's, you know, motion and time and it's measurable, that uh, without, without the consideration of consciousness, the, science, the, the, well, the positivists are saying, well, basically it's mechanical, dead and accidental. Um, they have to admit the existence of consciousness to consider it otherwise. Yeah, and they don't. And they don't. And uh, so he then goes on to say, he quotes a few people after this, he quotes Schopenhauer and he gives Kant another another run and he also brings back his mate Hinton. So all these people are, <laughs> are poised, ready to back him up. So Schopenhauer he quotes a passage from from this. He says, Nature exhibits a continual progress, starting from the mechanical and chemical activity of the inorganic world, proceeding to the vegetable with its dull enjoyment of self. I'm sure a vegetable sitting there very dully enjoying itself is probably an image. <laughs> I'd love to know how Schopenhauer can understand that that's what's going on in a, in a cabbage. I really... Look... <laughs> I, I agree with, with Spensky on this, you know, the, these, uh, you know, and Schopenhauer does end up with saying like, we go through all of these stages with man at the summit of nature's um, <laughs> great plan. Uh, oh, really? Um, okay. And I mean, I love that Spensky is contemptuous of, of, of Schopenhauer. He gives him a real serve. Because, well, he does and yep. quite rightly too. Yes. Thanks, Pete. We're going to leave it there and uh, we're going to continue with Chapter 16 next week. Uh, we've got lots left to go. Um, positivism gets a real serve and then we do get to uh, monism and dualism and uh, and, it's, and so it goes on. But uh, thanks so much for, for the chat this week. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been very, very interesting, you know, and obviously uh, much, much to my shock and surprise, um, I find myself now aligning much more with um, Uspensky as we stop walking around in circles and, and actually come out to the fight. Uh, and I'm with him. Yeah, I'm loving that. <laughs> and thanks everyone else for listening and we look forward to your company for the next instalment of Chapter 16.